Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Look what you made, Richard Dreyfuss do edition. It's Wednesday, September 6th, 2017. On today's show, the Spielberg classic, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, is now 40 years old, perished in thought. We discuss its re-release. And then Taylor Swift has dropped a new song and an accompanying video, which means every pop exegete must weigh in. We invited Jody Rosen to have a, no doubt, docile, anodyne, completely vituperation-free conversation about the various controversies surrounding the release. And finally, we talk fanfic with Slate's own Laura Miller. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. All right. Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out in 1977, which is when I first saw it in the movie theaters. That's how old I am. I will now say, I will hereby announce, it was the single most transformative cinematic experience of my life. It returns to theaters now on its 40th anniversary as an acknowledged masterpiece. But it's hard to remember that back then Spielberg was very young. He was a wunderkind. He had one hit to his name, and people were ready a little bit to pounce. They were ready for him to fail. Furthermore, his own friend, George Lucas, had come out with Star Wars that very very same year. It's incredible to think. Um, Both films are masterpieces, but they are very different from one another. Close Encounters is long, strange, hallucinogenic, and also a highly, highly personal film. It tells the story of Roy, an everyman who works for the power company, who becomes obsessed to the point of mania with the idea that aliens are visiting Earth. Why don't we listen to a clip? Who are you people? Monsieur Neri, s'il vous plaît, regardez bien les visages de ces gens, de ces hommes et de ces femmes. Et puis dites-moi si vous les connaissez, ou alors sont-ils des étrangers pour vous Yeah, except for her. Oui, Et vous êtes cru obligé, allez-vous, de venir ici And the two of you felt uh, compelled to be here Yeah, you might say that. Mais qu'est-ce que vous trouvé But what did you expect to find An answer. That's not crazy, is it Is that all you're, you're going to ask me Well, I got a couple of thousand goddamn questions, you know? I want to speak to someone in charge. I want a lodge a complaint. You have no right to make people crazy. You think I investigate every Walter Cronkite story there is, huh? If this is just nerve gas, how come I know everything in such detail? I've never been here before. How come I know so much? What the 
the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you people? Oh, my Lord. Dana, normally I would start with you on a movie, but um, Julia, I have to turn to you first. You've never seen Close Encounters before this past week? Uh, yep. Saw it for the first time this weekend. I, I thought it was great. I really liked it. I mean, it's just hard to see it without the patina of time on it and sort of thinking about it. It was hard to experience it as a pure cinematic experience and not uh, think of where it fits into Steven Spielberg's canon and the history of blockbuster movie. You know, like it, it, it I, I wish I could have seen it in a more pure way, I guess, if that made sense, because it's so um, one of the many great essays we read about it called it uh, the most sophisticated, naive movie you ever saw or something like that. Some 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 phrase like that. Um, and it does have that Spielbergian childlike wonder incredibly masterfully orchestrated uh, quality to it. Um, but I felt like I was not a sufficiently naive viewer, if that makes sense. Mm. Well, then I think we need to go back to Stephen's transformative viewing because he was, we can presume, a somewhat more naive viewer. There was less Spielberg to know and there was less of Stephen's life to have experienced. Was Kid, St- Kid Steve naive? That's a that's a slate <laughs> investigation. <laughs> so I was in, I think, seventh grade. Uh, went with a bunch of theater nerd friends and uh, was floored by it. I just, it was the first time I think the capacity of the film to both visually and narratively overwhelm you really came home to me. It just, it just seemed, even to naive Steve, it seemed to be a cinematic experience that came from someone, right? Specifically from a director. And that's just a revelation that you have at some point in your life watching a movie that a single you know, creative consciousness was responsible for integrating sound, light, dialogue, actors, you know, music, um, in order to craft a, a, a narrative that's heavily, you know, told th- through uh, heavily through images. Um, but I, you know, it's very hard for me to recover naive Steve because I've seen the movie so many times since. And I'll tell you what, um, somewhat less naive Steve. Uh, is blown away by is just it somehow takes the intimate form of filmmaking that Spielberg admired from Truffaut, who weirdly is in the film. You hear him in that clip. Um, and so much of the movie is designed to honor Truffaut and what Truffaut bought in terms of intimacy uh, and his appreciation for the perils of childhood to film with the blockbuster as the kind of emergent and dominant form of commercial filmmaking. And to me, the only movie that's ever balanced both perfectly uh, in a self-conscious statement about what movies can be is, is Close Encounters. Because in essence, the movie is about a father having a nervous breakdown, which I think was a highly personal story for Spielberg, uh, who works out his daddy issues in many of his movies. Uh, and it's about a family losing a father to a nervous breakdown. And then that that side to Spielberg about which one should have intelligent reservations then says that he's vindicated because the UFOs are real. But what Spielberg does that I think is utterly daring is he makes the the, the domestic suburban com- comedy slash tragedy of manners is presented as if the UFOs are not real. I mean, I don't. There's no point in the movie where you suspect they're not at all. My only point is that is that he is so honest about what is happening in that household, thanks to the father's obsession, 
that he he's made an intricate movie about what would happen if you lost a, a parent to um an, essentially to a nervous breakdown and then that part of Spielberg about which we have intelligent reservations is is well how do we feel about that narrative and that 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 tragedy being vindicated by the actual existence of aliens and that's the Spielberg who went on to make ET and about which we have uh, enormous reservations but at that point in time in 1977 there was a perfect equilibrium between the Spielberg who worshiped Truffaut and the Spielberg who made ET and that he could bring them both together in a single film to me is an act of total genius well I mean I think the the question that emerges seeing this 40 years later on the 40th anniversary of its release the, the thing in culture that has probably changed the most is actually probably our our attitudes about parenting right I mean I I don't remember at all as a child seeing this I was a little bit younger than Stephen but remember being blown away by it in theaters and it didn't occur to me at all that it was strange that Richard Dreyfus would leave his family mm. at the end of the movie and just without saying goodbye or telling them what was going on, get on a spaceship and go away for who knows how long. Because some of those people who come off, right, the people that are released, by the way, this is going to be a very spoiler heavy segment, but I think you've had 40 people, years. Right. People. You've had time. You've had time. <laughs> but some of these folks that get off right before Dreyfus gets on at the end have been on the spaceship for 30 years or something in movie time. So it may be that he's missing his children's entire childhood by making that choice. And that's mm. something that I think maybe sticks in our cultural craw more now than it would have at the time, especially with the implicit sexism of the fact that the Melinda Dillon character, the woman whose, whose child is abducted by aliens near the beginning and she gets him back at the end, refuses to go earlier, right? Before she gets her little boy back, she says, no, I'm not going to get on the spaceship with you, even though she's experiencing that same draw and that same obsession with getting to the mountain where they find out the spaceship will land. She's not going to go with him because she's waiting for her son. You know, so there's this inscription in the movie of the woman's job being to stay on Earth and be with her children, whereas the man can be this adventurer who goes out into the cosmos. And uh, and that made made no part of my experience of the movie when I first saw it, nor did it really stick in my mind as the message or ending of the movie all of those years since. But seeing it now after I have a child, which is worth noting Steven Spielberg did not yet when this movie was made, it, the end has a strange melancholy and a strange sense of both rightness. You know, you really want him mm -hmm. to, f to finish his story and get on that ship and go forward. And he's almost an artist, right? I mean, you identify with him as this person who's, who's driven by some vision he doesn't understand to achieve something higher. And the final scene of the yeah. movie, the, the ascent of the spaceship, very much vindicates that that movement of that character. But the people that are left on Earth, right, including us, yeah. are sort of yeah. left to wonder, well, what about us? All right. No, absolutely. I think this is a movie as much about a bit parental abandonment and the hopelessness of uh, the human condition because we, in fact, aren't going to have this angelic-like intercession in human affairs. It's a profoundly depressing movie, too. But I just want to say, Julia, before we go to you, I, I th it, it needs to be said that this is, this is visual storytelling on par with I believe any movie ever made, it competes with anything Ford, uh, Kurosawa, Renoir, Melies uh, made. It, 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 you know, it's politics aside, it, his capacity as a visual storyteller, which were, you know, kind of previewed in Jaws, itself a genre masterpiece. I mean, they just, they, they never, he never surpassed them in this movie and no one ever surpassed them. That's my, you know, I don't know. That's just my estimation of it as a film. Yeah, I mean, it's it's astonishing how much command Spielberg has in just thrusting these incredibly intense and diverse scenes and landscapes at you like you feel you feel emotionally piloted along in this beautiful way. Um, 
But, you know, one other reason, Dana, why the family narrative might not have stuck with you in the initial version you saw is that the initial theatrical release included a significantly curtailed version of that story. You basically don't spend hardly any time with his family, as far as I understand it, um, in that version. And you get pretty quickly to him pursuing his vision and the um, and and the, the potential of contact with aliens. And it, it, Steven Spielberg released an expanded version in 1980. And it's that expanded version that's been re-released now, where you spend a lot more time with uh, Ter- Terry Garr, who plays his wife and his kids, and sort of what happens in their community as he begins to fall prey to this mania. The thing that I think is most admirable about it, and that for me maybe makes it more powerful than other Spielberg pieces, is that 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 dissonance or that denial of the like happy family reunion at the end of it makes it just so much more interesting. I mean, it seems like it is simultaneously a movie about the like transcendent power of belief. And a movie about mental illness at the same time. Yeah. Like what it's like to be Absolutely married, married right. to a crazy person. And they're both right. Like Terry Gar is right to be dismayed that her husband has turned into like a mashed potato smearing weirdo um, who's lost all capacity to pay attention to the, the particulars of their existence. And also Richard Dreyfuss's character is right to pursue his contact with the divine. Like that, like the movie contains both of those things within it and neither outweighs the other. And that's what seemed most astonishing. All right, well, you guys have both said such incredibly beautiful, insightful things about my favorite movie that I now have to call in a ringer for my concluding comments. Uh, Who's gonna be the godhead himself, the man who I think in some ways more than anybody invented the idea of the director as a kind of literary author. Um, Jean Renoir went and saw Close Encounters in Beverly Hills, and he immediately wrote Truffaut a letter. He said, we have finally seen Close Encounters. It is a very good film, and I regret it was not made in France. This type of popular science would be most appropriate for the compatriots of Jules Verne and Méliès. You are excellent in it because you are not quite real. There is more than a grain of eccentricity in this adventure. The author, speaking of Spielberg now, and for a French director, for Jean Renoir to call uh, an American blockbuster director an author, he says to Truffaut, and to say it to Francois Truffaut, (laughs) he says, the author is a poet. In the south of France, one would say he is a bit fada. He brings to mind the exact meaning of this word in Provence. The village fada is the one possessed by the fairies. Uh, It just goes down as my favorite my probably my favorite movie of all time. All right, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's 40, which means I'm a million years old. Go see it. Oh, and P.S., see it in Dolby if you possibly can. I did, and it was so crisp and beautiful and sounded amazing. Um, we'd love to hear what you think about it at facebook.com slash culturefest. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast we talk about business. Julia Turner, um, what what do we have? The business. First, our live show in Toronto on September 13th at the Toronto Reference Library is sold out, but there is still one way to get into the show. We're doing a special after party with cocktails. And if you buy a ticket to that, it also guarantees admission to the show. There are only a few tickets left for the after party. So for more information, check slate.com slash live. Uh, I also want to take a moment here to recommend that our listeners check out The Gist. If you are a podcast fan, and come on, you probably are since you're listening to this, Mike Pesca has been hosting an excellent daily news podcast for Slate for three plus years. And if you like your daily news in audio format, you should definitely subscribe and listen to The Gist. Mike Pesca is just like a singular brain and tongue. He's so trying so hard to disguise himself as a guy guy and he does a great job of it because he can talk about sports and he kind of has this it's it's like the presentation is bluster but underneath is like you know Socrates or something I mean it, it's just an incredible blend of uh, qualities that's the gist with Mike Pesca also in our Slate Plus segment today, we'll be talking to the great Jody Rosen, wonderful critic and frequent guest to this show, about the book he's working on about the bicycle. Uh, we've made it a custom on this show to grill hosts and guests uh, by asking five questions about the book they are working on. And we will ask Jody five questions and he will reveal various answers. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program where fans of Slate and our podcasts help support us. If you enjoy this podcast and find it valuable, joining Slate Plus is a great way to support the work that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing these shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right. What is next? All right. Well, Taylor Swift, the uh, pop star, maybe you've heard of her, has dropped a new single. It's called Look What You Made Me Do. This meant one thing to this program. We had to get on the phone to our EFOP extreme friend of the program, <laughs> Jody Rosen, a contributing writer to the New York Times magazine. Jody, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, I believe what is about to follow is a discussion about the nature of criticism. Um, but that said, I want—I I think what we should begin by doing, before we get to the essay in New York Magazine about which we'll start to scream momentarily, we, let's listen to a clip. All right, well, um, let's get now to the heart of the matter here, which is Mark Harris, a critic that I think everybody uh, around this table admires enormously, wrote a piece for New York Magazine, um, and he begins by talking about a series of incredibly depressing pop culture, sports culture nadirs, including the uh, Floyd Mayweather, uh, Conor McGregor fight, uh, Bachelor in Paradise. Uh, and then he, he gets to the heart of it. He says, um, he writes, just as we reached the final dregs and leftovers phase of the summer, the first undeniable piece of pop art of the Trump era landed right in our laps. He then goes on to say, I have no idea what Swift's politics are, but I've heard enough of her songs over the years so that, of course, I know what her politics are. 
I win, but for the record, I'm the victim of haters and losers. Jody, you'll forgive me for saying this this uh, piece appears to have gone straight up your nose because you took to Twitter and Facebook and wrote uh, quite a lot about it in response. What was it about this argument that you thought was uh, wrongheaded? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the first thing was simply that it, I mean, it struck me, Mark Harris, as you said, is a guy I respect enormously, really, really a lot. Uh, but in this case, the biggest thing was the failure to actually address the song qua song at all. It's not that music and this song in particular can't um, express politics. It's that the, you know, how is the politics that is being imputed to it expressed in the sound of the song, in the production, in the harmonic language, in the vocal performance. When I listened to those things, I drew the conclusion this song is kind of a um, an elaborate jape and not some strident, you know, uh, uh, exercise in score settling or some or uh, and 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 that you know that failure to grasp the song's humor um, mm. struck me as particularly problematic. I mean, we can get into my other qualms with the, with the piece, of which there are many, but that was like my, you know, my, my, my pr- first in reaction, which is like, let's talk about the song. Let's not just, it seemed to me that he'd, for a guy who claimed in this piece to disdain the hothouse atmosphere of social media, he had just shoveled in a whole lot of hot takes of Taylor Swift, not really based on either this song or, or any familiarity that he demonstrated with her music and what she's what she's about as like a songwriter and performer. You know, Harris says that that Taylor Swift's that the message of all her her songs or her art is I'm the winner, you're all losers, but I'm the victim. I just don't that's not the message I get from her music. She does not play the victim in songs as that that's not really what her songs are about. She writes love songs. She writes breakup songs. She writes songs about self-assertion. Um, I mean, she may have played the victim in various imbroglio internet <laughs> cause celeb, but in her music, she she hasn't really. And I don't. So I think that like the inference that being that's being drawn there is about stuff external to her music, and I think that's. A problem, but Jody. One thing I would say in response is that all criticism since the beginning of time has made the sort of analogy from specific works, you know, synecdotally out to the cultural moment. And if you were to take that away from critics as one possible way of interpreting a culture, especially pop culture, we'd be left with almost nothing. I mean, we'd be left with kind of a vacuous uh, formalism. I would break the complaint that Harris is making against her down maybe into two separate parts. The first is that she's winning and complaining about it incessantly. I don't, as a factual claim, I don't really know whether that's true. As an aesthetic claim, is she ironic in this song? I mean, many people think maybe yes, but then she overplays that in the coda, which we should talk about. But But to me, the real essence of the complaint is that Pop culture seems to be um, uh, manufacturing itself within its own rather hermetically sealed vacuum. A complaint that Harris, you know, levels against her, um, you know, uh, pretty explicitly. I just think that 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 that's an argument, really, that Pomo irony isn't going to rescue in a sense. This song is so about uh, the images that have been imputed uh, to this person and behaviors that have been imputed to this person that that it's um it's a little too sterile and echoey for me to relate to on any level and i would agree with you and that's that's a criticism that i totally accept i mean when 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 i learned that taylor swift's album was going to be called 
reputation. And I saw the the album cover, which has images of Taylor Swift's face with newspaper <laughs> copy superimposed over it. Which contains I, nothing but the words Taylor, but Taylor Swift. Swift. Yeah, I groaned because I agree that, that it is hermetically sealed. And, it's, and to me, it's a boring subject for music. And so that's that. And now I think that this song itself is is OK as an exercise in that particular <laughs> subject matter. But it's not it to me. It's it is um, claustrophobic and 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 it doesn't interest me very much. But that's not the criticism that Mark Harris is making here. So I think we need to kind of invoke Godwin's law when he's calling her Trumpian. I mean, it's really it's really an extreme complaint. And this is where I think um, if you want to talk about the politics of criticism, there's something to be said here about the current moment, because what I think we're seeing in this brouhaha is um, the power of so-called stan culture, if you are familiar with the term. You know, it's a, it's a portmanteau mm-hmm. word. It's a portmanteau of stalker and fan. It's der- I never knew that was the derivation of the word well, stan. Well, the, the other derivation is it comes from the Eminem song, Stan, which is about an obsessive fan. The point is that, like, you know, Taylor Swift's fans, Beyonce's Bayhive, or however the fuck you pronounce that, Lady Gaga's Little Monsters, you know, all these, all these fan armies construe pop music fandom, pop music appreciation, you might even say, as this kind of zero-sum game battle of pop stars for supremacy. And that extreme form of fandom, which has its own shrill politics that are incubated in the, in the hothouse of social media, is now seeping into criticism. And journalism. And that, to me, is very grim. And it's not just, of course, that the stands are saying, I think Beyonce's music's, um, I love Beyonce's music, or even that they're saying, I think Beyonce's music's the best and everybody else's music sucks. It's that they're, you know, conferring the status of sainthood on, like, the star that they like and imputing, like, moral treachery to everybody else. And that is, you know, and then to get Trumpian about it, what springs up, as a result, it's all kinds of fake news. So such that we've seen in the last week stories about Taylor Swift being like a neo-Nazi and an alt-right sympathizer. And that, I think, is what's, what is the kind of um, larger takeaway from this for criticism is that, you know, in the, in the media ecosystem we're in where everybody has to churn out copy about Taylor Swift really quickly, there's, there's a lot of, and everyone's obsessing over Trump. There's maybe some blithe connections that are being drawn between one thing and the other here. Uh, I guess I would try to um, to to play Steve here, split the baby in half, um, in that I do think you could argue that this song, it, it makes sense that this song came out in 2017 instead of in 2006 or God help us, 2026. I hope Trump's not still president then. Um without necessarily equating it with Trump. Like the notion of saying this is a piece of culture that it's worth looking at in the context of this particular moment uh, and then saying like Taylor is Trump. Those are two different points that Harris makes in the piece. And I think there's a clearer case for the first one than the second, which is even if you argue that she's playing with these ideas and she's messing around with them, the notion that we're inhabiting a world both politically and culturally where uh, the internet facilitates the lobbying back and forth of bad faith insults uh, and that you could create both the terrifying political figure that is Trump and like the set of stuff that the songwriter Taylor Swift is playing with. Like th- th- that seems like one way to say this is a song of the Trump era without saying like she's a craven monster. 
Yeah, I think differentiating those two points is an important thing to do. The night that Mark Harris's piece posted, I posted a link to it on Twitter because I just thought it was a, a fascinating piece of criticism. I hadn't even heard the the song at that point. And I could not believe the amount, the vectors of hate that that stirred up immediately on Twitter where total strangers were sending me things like, oh, thanks, white person that no one cares about. It was very racialized for one thing. Right. And 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 like, I mean, to be fair, I think like, you know, it's no accident that there's a lot of racialized um, conversation <laughs> around this conversation is maybe a, a nice way of putting it. Um, and there, there are interesting things to be said about Taylor Swift's image, about r- the role that race has played in the various controversies that have surrounded her. Obviously like the, the, the Kanye West Taylor Swift controversy, which we will, un- I, be- I like, they'll be rolling me out of bed and like wheeling me in here on a gurney when <laughs> I'm 85 to discuss that. Right. But, but I mean, that resonates with a lot of interesting tropes in the culture and, you know, their legitimate grievances of African-Americans about, about images in popular culture, all that said it's, yeah, I just, I just think we need to pull these apart. And I think it's at, like at, at, at this mo- it strikes me that at this moment, yes, we can discuss um, ways in which you know I- ideas are in the culture um, that are that are seemingly Trumpy and are expressing themselves in pop culture. But like to talk about Taylor Swift, like how did she vote? I don't know what her politics yeah. is, but her her what what did he say? His her music is Trumpy, and that's a that's a pretty serious charge when you think about who Trump right. is and what he represents and no that's true and it, and it seems like it doesn't it doesn't it, it you know there it the if the if the role of a critic is to look at a piece of art or culture and tease out the things that are um that are interesting and resonant about it that to me seems an extremely ham-fisted way i mean that to me is the is the very definition of a hot take and it's mm. it seems like it's beneath mark harris and it's like it's just it's just a boring way to discuss Taylor Swift, whatever you think of her music, it's just like Trumpian, you know what I mean? And I I just want to say one other thing. So, so my, my, my other complaint about Mark Harris's piece in particular was, okay, he didn't really discuss the music itself. He sort of, he toggled straight to like, Taylor Swift is a pop victimologist. You know, she plays the victim in all these various ways. He didn't really get into it. He just sort of asserted it. But Mm -hmm. in any case, if you're going to discuss Taylor Swift's victimhood, it was, it's worth invoking the fact that she just was found in a court of law to have been the victim of sexual assault. And the way that she handled that case, I think is instructive. She didn't litigate it online and social media. She didn't talk to the press about it. She didn't Mm -hmm. even talk about it in her music heretofore. She went into court and in a, a manner very similar to the way that she, the persona in her, in some of her songs, she, you know, asserted this is some fucking bullshit. And she Mm -hmm. was found in a court to have been, you know, right. She was the victim of sexual assault. And this, there was a, there was a specious lawsuit brought against her. And so to then call her Trumpian, when you have like a confessed sex assaulter in the white house and you have a woman Mm -hmm. who a court just declared a victim of sexual assault, that seems to me like a, a little clueless. Well, let me let me let me let me defend the Harris piece uh, um, and and a and a kind of criticism that I that I really believe in. First of all, I think it has to be done somewhat agnostically because what you're saying is, how are we one day going to look back on this current moment? You're you're doing this kind of little bit of a 
you know, um, hocus pocus where you're projecting imaginatively into the into a future that is looking back on 2017. But one of the ways you get away with doing that, I think, is that we all the time look back on the 1950s or or the Reagan era. I mean, pick whatever chronological uni- unit you you know you want to impose on the past, and you find likenesses that were less obvious at the time. Um, and and you know, of course, there's a shallow zeitgeist version of this that's badly done. But there is a way in which many facets of culture in the you know Reagan era, which Jody, as you know, I'm writing a book about. I mean, the expressed Reaganism and expressed mm. a kind of shift in the culture. Um, that were not overtly political, but in some ways were finally culpable. They went with a prevailing energy that was toxic rather than against it. And I think it's not only possible, but a a political obligation on the part of the critic to ask about the present moment with the degree of salutary uh, agnosticism, because we don't really know, you know, is this person swimming with or against the tide? Is the tide a healthy or a toxic one? Uh, you know, uh, what energies are mutually reinforcing to one another, to one another? Who is drawing courage from uh, certain kinds of behavior, or certain kinds of songs or movies? Um, and and who is it putting on the defensive, and why? Um, a, a critic gets you know paid uh, the huge money to you know be a critic because you can't finally be right about it you're not identifying a color or adding two numbers you're not doing something empirical you're making an argument and his piece was an essay in the true sense of the word he was he himself invokes it he says you look back on the reagan era and you see top gun and dynasty and sure there was probably someone at the time who said quite rightly about top gun that it's a a kitsch fiesta and you shouldn't take it too seriously but on the other hand looking back on it there absolutely is every reason to believe that that movie enabled a kind of shallow jingoism and a, what turned out to be, I think, a historically terrible presidency. And 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 maybe it deserves to be held accountable. And I, I don't think it's out of bounds to make that move about something that came out last month. Yeah, fair enough. I, I mean, I, I, I accept that for sure. I mean... I guess the one other thing I would say, I mean, you know, someone like Taylor Swift, like you could you could look at her in all sorts of ways. You could look at her as some sort of I mean, Steve, you could look at her as like a neoliberal pop icon. Right. In for various ways that I won't, you know, I won't elaborate here. Like, you know, you could look at her as like, you know, one percent of the one percent icon. On the other hand, if you want to historicize it. She's also a female singer-songwriter with an audience that is disproportionately young women who are who they are not taking the message that Mark Harris is taking from her. And I think that's important. If you've gone to see Taylor Swift in concert and seen the, her connection with her fans who by the way run the gamut of race and ethnicity and are largely but not exclusively by the way female, um that's some real shit their connection there. So for you know, I, and I don't want to jump in. I don't want to be the identity politics demagogue either. But especially when you think about the the history of the way popular popular music has been interpreted by critics. You know, women and uh, women in the audience who've disproportionately made up the audience for pop music throughout history, and female performers have kind of gotten the shaft. Okay, and Taylor Swift is a complicated figure, singer songwriter, auteur, businesswoman who's doing her own shit and isn't taking any any shit at all in her songs you know is she is she just like a a feminist is she but or is she just or is she you know some entitled rich girl maybe she's both and more so that to me is like something you got to bring into the argument too yeah well in addition to the the uh kind of 
racial cluelessness that she may have exhibited in the past in her various conflicts and imbroglios. I think there's also just the, you know, fundamental cluelessness of this song that comes out where she's like rapping badly and adopting a traditionally black mode of pop music uh, and focusing entirely on herself and her stupid celebrity beefs, even if in a joking way at a moment where like that's just not that's just not what's happening in this country right now or in this place. And as you say, Jody, maybe she wrote this in the winning days of the Obama era when we all thought this was going to come out in a I don't think we actually know. But she seems out to lunch racially. Um, and and I think the other argument people have made is we don't know how she voted. She does command the loyalty of this teen fan army. She never, during the election, said anything explicit of like, hey, teen fan army, if you care about the fate of women, perhaps you should consider the stakes in this election and vote accordingly. Um, so those are among the political uh, and racial marks against her. She, I think she may prove to be an artist very much of the same era that created Trump and that there may be a really fascinating and intellectually rigorous and sound way to make that argument. I think we got to let her make a few more albums and see how capacious her talent proves. But to me, that seems like a, a risk factor on the horizon more than this specific song means she is Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's yeah. the hot that's the hot take take. Down. And I think actually, Jody, congratulations. I think you've kind of converted me. I mean, when I read that Mark Harris piece, I was just I was impressed by his craft as a writer and by the breadth of things he was bringing in and just by how, as I say, how accurately he summarized the moment. But I think that the final conclusion that he came to really is kind of wrong. Whatever you think about about Taylor Swift herself, I think it, it, it's too fast. The equivalency is too sudden. I like the piece more than ever. I mean, I think one function of a critic writing on a weekly deadline uh, for a weekly magazine is to make the take hot and throw it out there and, you know, kind of let everyone live and die on it until they move on. I mean, it's just, it's you know, he's not Edmund Wilson writing to the Finland station. I mean, this is, you know, he, he can be that critic. He works in that mode too, but this was just, uh, this was throwing it out there. And anyway, the amazing thing is it stimulated a conversation which we were about Taylor Swift, about which we were all mutually respectful. Am I wrong? <laughs> this, is, this is progress, guys. This is how we're going to fight the Trump era. Everybody fell asleep listening to this segment, by the way. I was going to say, there are three people still listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, Jody Rosen, contributing writer to the Times Magazine. Uh, will you uh, will you sort of hang around while we do another segment and then join us for uh, the plus segment? Would love to. Would love to. All right. All right. Fantastic. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Fanfic or fan fiction uh, can be variously defined to encompass almost anything from Virgil's Aeneid to hot Spock on Kirk action. Here's a, a, a somewhat narrow academic de definition. Someone has called it creative material featuring characters from works whose copyright 
is held by others. Uh, under that definition, and maybe a slightly more, ma- more imaginative one, you can see how this would be a renaissance, the age of Harry Potter and Buffy and the internet altogether would make for a renaissance of fan fiction. Here to discuss the phenomenon is Laura Miller, books and culture columnist for Slate. Laura, welcome back to the show. You are an EFOP. You're an extreme friend of the pro- program now. I- I'd like to let you know you've won your latest epaulette. Well, I'm honored. Um, I want to start with something that you said in a piece that you wrote a couple years ago about fanfic that really surprised me, which is that the author Annie Prue, who's probably best known for having written the short story Brokeback Mountain, from which came the movie, wishes she'd never written it. Well, I don't know how serious she is about saying she wishes she never uh, wrote Brokeback Mountain, but she was very... um, aggravated and frustrated and 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 exasperated by a a group of fans i think who who originally found out about the the story through the film who really objected to its sort of sad and tragic ending and who kept trying to who kept writing their own versions of the story with a happier ending and then sending them to her which i think was their big mistake <laughs> she was like no that's not how it ends understandably and um and it was just a strange and alien experience to her because she being a literary fiction writer is not very familiar with the sort of world and impulse known as fic and um and it made no sense to her but it's actually an incredibly common practice and a huge subculture that has gone on to spawn all different kinds of original works based um well, that that started out as as fan fiction I know very little about fanfic, but it seemed to me there are two or three different ways to look at it. There's a kind of cultural capital argument that it's good because it's democratic, right? There's a therapeutic argument that it allows people to enact forbidden desires uh, creatively. And then there's just an aesthetic argument that it's getting at least good enough to compete with the original work. So, for example, Fifty Shades of Grey, whatever one thinks about it, was derivative of Twilight, was fanfic of Twilight. Where do you you come out on some of these uh, arguments? Well, I find the whole world of fan fiction completely fascinating. Although I, I, all of my, I'm always saying to my contacts within that world that I don't have that particular fanish inclination. I am happy with canon. One of the things that I like about canon, which is what fan fiction writers, at the term they use for the original, the source material, what could be the copyrighted material or just the original material. Um, what I like about it is that it's limited. And for me, thinking about what it means within the limitations of what the original creator wanted to do with it is a rewarding practice in itself. Uh, but that's because I'm a critic. Fic writers, and that's what they often like to be called, or they like to have fan fiction called fic. That's that's co- the common term used. They look at an existing story and they see all the things that they wish were there that that aren't there. And then they set about creating those things. And I think it's certain types of work tend to inspire that impulse more than others. And to me, it, it's it's kind of lovely and fascinating example of human creativity. Some of it is good. Some of it is bad. 
I, I'm not that interested in reading variants of a tale that I really like. like. I've just, it never would have occurred to me to write thick about any of the books I've, or movies or television shows I've loved over my life. I just do not have that urge. But the people who do fascinate me in the world in particular that they've built out of that practice and the community that they've they've assembled and the customs and the language that they've developed to talk about it are eternally fascinating to me. The dynamics of it are incredibly interesting. I mean, I similarly, you know, I'm not a, I don't, I don't care to create fiction of any kind, literary or derivative. <laughs> but um, but the essential occasion for our conversation is a new book out by Francesca Coppa called The Fan Fiction Reader, which is one of the first times, I think, that there's been a published anthology of, of fic, um, in part because of the copyright troubles around publishing anything that's based off of copyrighted works. Um, but again, the aesthetics of the underlying stuff aren't as interesting as the economy that surrounds it to me. I mean, one question I have for you, Laura, is to what degree is the rise of fic, I mean, it's somewhat attributable to the internet and the the networking of fans probably, but it also seems like it finds a home particularly in serialized works so that it seems like it would thrive in an age where television is a dominant medium rather than movies and also in an age where just IP, like the corporations that own IP like to franchise them and make there be more of whatever it was that was successful. But like you have the sense if you watch Buffy and are aware that there's a show Angel that like there is a whole universe in which you could turn Cordelia into whatever you want and make a whole story around her. Or, you know, J.K. Rowling encourages this with her various iterations on the Harry Potter universe. Um, And you know, the notion that this is a, a thing that young dev- devout readers do, and it's a way that devout readers become writers of varying qualities and aspiration levels um, is super interesting to me. Yeah, I think that the that the works that tend, that lend themselves best or that are sort of spark that, that thick flame of creativity the most tend to be ones that create a world. So probably the er version of modern fandom were the Sherlock Holmes stories. And it's not usually seen as like a fan fiction sector, but because so many of the people who wrote the fan fiction off of Sherlock Holmes were men and, and, and the culture of fan fiction in our contemporary period, which begins with um, with Star Trek, is largely driven by women. Um, but there was a whole group of people who met regularly who wrote spin-off Sherlock Holmes stories or who wrote mock historical treatises about what happened to the characters in between the stories. But there are these gaps. It creates a world, but then there are these gaps in it. And the impulse is to sort of fill in those gaps or change things in a certain way. And um, and so I, I have no idea if there was Dickens fan fiction. I'm not aware of it. I do know that very famously Thackeray strongly objected to the ending of Ivanhoe, the romantic pairing, and rewrote a, you know, wrote his own version of it that ended the way that he liked. So, you know, it's, it's an impulse that's preexisted all of, you know, television and, and film. But, um, 
But I think that television and film bring these, or television in particular, brings these expansive narratives that feel like they could, like, as you said, expand forever or go off in this direction or go off in that direction. They encourage the idea that the world of the story could be made larger or there's some corner of it that could be explored and then brought that into so many households where people maybe didn't grow up with reading long serialized novels or or even thinking of themselves as writers. And then that those stories kind of got into their heads and they wanted it to be another way and they just had to make that thing. And that's what I think probably television brought those kinds of stories into more lives and created, and then the internet created the opportunity to share that with a lot of other people. Then the other really unusual thing about fan fiction is that it's a kind of a communal process. Uh, you post your, your story and then you try to get people to read it and give you responses and people rewrite according to responses or they they write original pieces on a on certain cues you know there are things like writing exercises or like write a christmas story about uh you know buffy or whatever or write a story where this happens or that happens and 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 they present each other with challenges and so it's a a a Almost, it has some of the qualities of a folk culture in that way. There's the shared body of stories, and then people, you know, compete or they, or they, they offer additions to each other, and then they take them or they use something else, and and it's it's a very uh, collaborative form, really different from like our idea of the the writer as somebody who's like off alone, this solitary genius figure. Yeah, and actually off of that one thing that Stephen Burt pointed out in his New Yorker piece about this new anthology is that part of what uh, fan fiction offers to starting writers is an immediate audience. So if you're just alone in your basement scribbling away on your story that does not have uh, popular IP as its main characters, then nobody's going to read that story. Or It's much harder to find a community of people to read and respond to and give you feedback and all the things that you might learn from as a writer on that story. Whereas if you you know, write about an alternate version of Twilight where Bella falls in love with Harry Styles. There's probably, you can probably find a community of people to give you a bunch of feedback on that, um, which is in its own interesting dynamic. All fiction has a kind of ramp up where you start out not caring about it, not believing in it. And then it's the job of the creator to get you interested, to make you care about the characters, to start to wonder what happens next. And you don't have to go through that ramp up if you're taking characters that are already known. Yeah. But sparing the readers the work of that ramp up is also putting an extra burden on the writer in a sense to, I mean, you have to bring something new to the work. And it seems like from some of the reading we were doing about this new fic anthology and, and other places where it occurs is that is that the dangerous path the, the fic writer can go down is to sort of insert him or herself into the story too, obviously, to make this kind of proxy character, sometimes called the Mary Sue character, right? This sort of flawless hero or heroine who gets inserted into the story. I, I think this was you cited one story, a Trekkie story where a woman gets on the Starship Enterprise and everyone falls in love with her. Well, that's the original Mary Sue story where the, the that character was called Mary Sue and was where that, that term comes from. Um, yeah, but I also find that the that the critical language that fan fiction communities have come up with for um, things that are good or bad about their their 
works actually apply pretty universally to all forms of art. And the first time I heard of the Mary Sue, I was like, oh my God, that describes exactly a certain thing that I often encounter in literary fiction, the idealized character that's, you know, the, the character that's based on the the author, but lives in a slightly better neighborhood and has a better car and is younger and good looking. I mean, thrillers, in almost inevitably, thrillers written by middle-aged men have these middle-aged male main characters who are really really marty stew is what they're (laughs) sometimes called they're in really good shape and they're you know so attractive to women and you know they you know they just don't have any they can decode medieval runes yeah exactly i mean what is that character that dan brown character if not a marty stew so um i i love that this world of fiction making has come up with this whole vocabulary to talk about things that are actually universal problems of, of fiction and um, happen, you know, sins committed by all kinds of creators in a way that feels fresh and new. And in a way, because I respond like a critic does rather than like a fic writer does to works of art that I like. The thing that excites me the most about fan fiction is the way that the people who make it and who contribute to the making of it talk about it because they have developed an understanding of how stories work that's that's really sophisticated and astute. Now, a lot of the people who write a, you know, a sort of a classic Mary Sue story are really young and just starting out and I'm sure uh, almost you know, every, you know, it's so many writers have the story of like that first story of the rocket to Mars that they wrote when they were in seventh grade or something. And, and, and I'm sure it has a square jawed hero who is good at everything. It's just what people do when they're starting out. Uh, my favorite critical term from the fic community, which I think we've discussed on the show before, is shipping, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah, yearning for two characters in a show or work to get together and uh, the fic sometimes takes the form of causing that union to take place that is a thing that has been in literature forever wanting people to do it <laughs> but that didn't have a good critical yeah. uh name and that was basically William Thackeray's issue with Ivanhoe was that he wanted Ivanhoe to be with Rowena instead of whoever it was he was nope. with. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Sorry. If, we, if, we've, if, we've revoked, if we've revoked the spoiler alert on Close Encounters, I think also we I revoke mean, it on Ivanhoe. It's not like anybody's going to go out and read Ivanhoe, so uh, I don't think we need to worry not, about that. Maybe not. Um, Laura Miller, it is uh, just a total pleasure to have you back on the show. Uh, thanks for coming on to talk about fanfic. It's been fun. Thanks. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Yes, let's see. So last week, uh, I reviewed a movie for Slate called Columbus, which was the feature film of a director who goes by a pseudonym, a one-name pseudonym, Koganada. Uh, He's a Nashville, Tennessee-based video artist and video essayist who got a chance to make his first feature film. So Columbus isn't quite the endorsement, although I loved it and I do recommend you see it. It's a beautiful, small movie with John Cho of Harold and Kumar fame in a in a straight role, and uh, and it's sort of about architecture in a really fascinating way. Anyway, you can re- read my review, and if you get a chance to see Columbus, see it. But that's not my endorsement. My endorsement is actually to go to the Vimeo website of this director, Coconata, and just look at his past work. He has an archive there of all the video essays he's created through the years, some of which reside 
on the Criterion website or on the British Film Institute website. In other words, he's done work, commissioned work for people, but he's also just made these little beautiful jewel-like video essays about things he's interested in, usually cinema. So two starters that I wanted to recommend because there's a few dozen to choose from there are one called Bergman's Mirrors that is nothing but a kind of supercut of all the women looking into mirrors in Ingmar Bergman movies edited together really beautifully and accompanied by someone reading Sylvia Plath's poem, which I believe is called The Mirror, a poem about mirrors. Perfect little maybe three to four minute video. And there's also a slightly more maybe discursive one, critical sort of one, about Richard Linklater that's called On Cinema and Time that looks at how Richard Linklater's movies explore time, which given the fact that he has so many movies in which, or series of movies in which you watch people age through time, is a really beautiful way to approach Linklater. So yes, we'll put the link on our show page, but go to Koganada's Vimeo site and explore his work and see if you don't get excited about his beginning film career. Mm, wonderful. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Uh, I have an appropriate first week of September endorsement, which is a discovery I've made in our Summer Strut list. So true to form, I have been listening to an edit of our Summer Strut playlist all summer long. I kind of transmogrified it into a playlist called Kid Drive and added all of our kids' favorite songs to it. So it's like a mix of Summer Strut and then uh, You're Welcome from Moana and 76 Trombones and the the museum song from P.T. Barnum. Oh, my God. I need a Spotify link immediately. <laughs> it's like kind of a great mashup list, if I do say so myself. But one sleeper gem from the Summer Strut list, which I should stipulate is not strutty at all, but is like lovely and um, whatever the opposite of melancholic is, elegiac maybe. Um, that's not the opposite. but <laughs> Like exultant or something like that. Well, it has, it's, let me say what the song is and then I'll explain what, what I, I'll try and triangulate amongst all the adjectives we've thrown out. The song is called Days Like This. It's a song by Van Morrison, which is an artist band. I don't even know, like not a, an artist I've paid any attention to ever. You don't know whether Van Morrison is a person or a group? It's <laughs> no. an individual or a band? I don't. Oh my God. All I know oh about Van God. Morrison is Brown Eyed Girl. I love the Neil Youngs. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't born yet, people. <laughs> anyway, it's an it's an artist. It's a guy. <laughs> he is a man. <laughs> anyway, he's a person. <laughs> uh, like I said, this is what I love about Summer Strut. I discover things that I did not know. Um, the song "Days Like This" by Van Morrison, the man, is excellent. And what I mean by the opposite of melancholic is it is kind of sleepy and slow and backward looking, reminiscent. Um, but it is also about the possibility of contentment and joy. And it's beautiful. So listen to it and check out all of my favorite band, Van Morrison's <laughs> cool tracks. <laughs> no, I take it back. I can only endorse this track, but I endorse it heartily. All right, Steve. Oh, my God. All right. Um <laughs> So uh, we lost uh, two really good ones this past week. Uh, Steely Dan's uh, co-founder, co-writer of most, if not all, of their music, Walter Becker, died at the age of 67. 
Becker was a great musician and a great songwriter. I think The Dan is one of the most underrated bands of all time. They're mistaken for not being cool. That's ridiculous. They're, they're just incredible musicians, incredible songwriters. So many of their I just love like Bad Sneakers, great song. Deacon Blues, one of the best pop songs ever written. Uh, the entire album of Asia, Home at Last, wonderful songs. People don't know them, don't know them well enough. A um, couple of other things about Walter Becker you might not know. The first is that he produced a, one of, like a p- kind of pet favorite album of mine, a sentimental favorite of mine. He produced the album Blind Cowboys by Ricky Lee Jones uh, in 1989. And uh, I wore that album out that year and uh, for a couple subsequent years. And um, he also has an he had one of the great rock star websites was Becker's own and it was very much his own. There's a ton of his own writing on it that's very mordant and uh, observational about uh, his uh, status in the music world. It's really, really, really good. Becker was a huge talent, and um, this was too soon. Uh, I never understood John Ashbery's work until I saw him read in the flesh, probably right around the time that I was listening to Ricky Lee Jones, right around 1990. He came to um, UVA and read his poems, and I understood at last how funny they were, um, how precise, um, and how weird, but um, but mostly how funny they were and how funny he was and how he had intended them. They weren't meant as this po- postmodernist wallpaper. They were, they were um, poignant and, uh, and to use your word, uh, Julia, quite melancholy. Um, so my uh, endorsement is not just Ashbury, who of course is one of the towering geniuses of the second half of the 20th century, on and on and on, but to go to YouTube and watch him read. He read at the Kelly Writer's House, so very good friends of mine about four years ago. Um, he was uh, quite on in years when he did that, but there's, uh, there's archival footage of him going back many decades. Uh, if you are interested in getting to know um, John Ashbury, one possible place to start is uh, is uh, with video. I mean, I don't know his work well, but people were posting some amazing poems by him all weekend. I was so into yeah. it. It made me want to read him. I don't know. He's so prolific. I kind of don't know where to start. And he has like long narrative things. And like if you just wanted to crack one book that wasn't some huge, epic, overwhelming thing, what would you read? Uh, the place I would start is where he started. The Tennis Court Oath, I believe, was his first collection, 1962. Um Anyway, it uh, it's probably the most ex- accessible uh, way into him, and then from there, there are, there are, there are dozens. I mean, he, he did so much, but start there, and then maybe move on to the video, and you'll find you'll find your way. Okay, so John Ashbury and Walter Becker. Thanks, uh, thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. All right, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Networks. It's him, actually, that steps off of the spaceship at the end of Close Encounters. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out our entire <laughs> roster at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks for joining us. We'll, we'll see like you soon. Like the flick of a switch Well, my mama told me There'll be days like this When you don't